Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced at the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne and broadcast across this continent via the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nohern. Just don't wait for stuff to just come at you, you know. Um, we are, we're, we're in a vulnerable place right now, so um, we're off script be an active participant in writing what happens next. On today's show, we dip in to a wide-ranging conversation between best-selling author and journalist Naomi Klein and comedian Amir Rahman. They discuss race and the colonial mindset in a post-Trump world and reflect on what this means for environmental organising in Australia and Canada. Recorded just days after Donald Trump won the 2016 US presidential election. Here they are at the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne. I was thinking about something that you said the other night uh, on Q&A, because we saw Brexit, we saw, yeah. we've seen Trump, like these are, I mean, they're mass movements, like they're, it's a lot of people signing up to, you know, a set of ideas. And in Australia, it's kind of been, you know, a much more fringe kind of phenomenon, you'd think, from seeing, you know, the return of Pauline Hanson and stuff like that. But then you said this thing on Q&A, which was that, you know, Trump proposes insane racist things like a wall, whereas in Australia, we already do those things. Like, we've built these offshore gulags. And it was so depressing because it, it really does prove that, I think, in Australia, like, we're so far ahead of the curve. We mainstreamed, we mainstreamed these ideas well before, you know, there was this kind of, like, white resurgence in the rest of the Western world. Australia was already like, no, we, we did our homework. We're already here. What do you think that's about? Uh, I think it is about Australia being, I think, a unique settler colonial project uh, and whiteness being such a, such a crucial kind of part of this country's DNA. Um, and the fact that, you know, we had this white Australia policy that basically stopped non-white people from coming here en masse until the early 70s. Mm-hmm. So there's just a total period of basically extermination and genocide, Aboriginal people surviving and fighting alone until the arrival of migrants. Um, Migrants coming then in very short, controlled waves um, and, you know, being very, very young communities that haven't had a long history of organising or solidarity. Um, And I move on or or one person agreeing with my quick quick review of Australian multiculturalism. I think... (laughs) Yeah, I, I, think, I think there is something uniquely, uniquely cultural about, about Australia's history and the way, the way race has been used as a, a strategy to, to control and, um, and organise people. Because I... I, I mean, part, part, what, part, what I wanted to ask you about as well is... No, you, this is not no, how it's supposed but, to work. No, but I, <laughs> no, well, okay, no I didn't read something. enough books for let you me to be Let me float something with you, which is... Um, well, because I, I feel like Canada and Australia have a lot in common, um, but not everything, right? And um, both settler colonial states, obviously, um, and... Um, and, and both very much having this, these sort of narratives of, of wilderness, of bigness, right? Um, where it's sort of like, uh, you know, extra supersized Europe, look what we found, right? Like, 
let's call it New South Wales, right. you know. Um, and we, you know, we, we were New France, right? I just, I've just started thinking a lot about that. It's, just, it's a really weird thing to do. <laughs> okay, I, I found us, but bigger. And we can do whatever we want here. And there's, like, I think, like, this sort of the, the north, the outback, like, these places of sort of so big, like, you can kind of do anything there and hide yeah. anything there. And there's a lot of similarities, I think know? there is a lot of similarity in that nat- national mythology and this kind of, like, these endless, well, it's in our national anthem, boundless plains, yeah. right? Like yeah. endless opportunities for yeah. extraction and yeah. settlement and mm-hmm, stuff like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. The main thing that hits me when I go to Canada is just the demographics, right? Like of a, of a city like Toronto. Mm-hmm. And again, like the length of time that people of color have been there in various communities. Right. Um, and the fact that, you know, I was there, I think, just, just during the last election and the way, you know, the parties have in every neighborhood people who look like the people in that neighborhood running, right? You have, yeah. you have now a, a Sikh defense minister, you have an yeah. Aboriginal woman who's in charge of Aboriginal. You, you have this kind of you know, surface Our diversity. Sorry, Justice Minister. Yeah. You, know, you have this kind of surface diversity that's kind of permeated the culture. Whereas in Australia, you know, like in, in places like Canada and the US and UK, you complain about tokenism. In Australia, like we don't even... No, we I haven't even I've reached, noticed that. We haven't even reached tokenism. So, yeah. yeah, I mean... I noticed that like when I was on, when I was on Q&A... There were like six people to, talking about hate crimes and migration. Two of them are from the IPA. All of them are white. And it's like, and we're talking about whether Australia is too politically correct. I'm like, no, not politically correct enough. That's any given night in Q&A. You're likely to have, you know, five or six white people discussing. Yeah, race, but, 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 but okay, so here's what, but, but in thinking about like, like I, I mean, I, you know, Canada is not this, you know, multicultural utopia. Um, one, you know, one of our biggest problems is like being like right next to the U.S. and this and this sort of like not the not not as Worst bad, neighbor not ever. as bad. Like, but we're not as bad. So like we're con- like there's constantly a sort of letting ourselves off the hook thing that goes on in Canada, um, and uh, and it does really whitewash our history um, and our present. Um, but. So what I want to ask you is, is that it, it, if I look at sort of the difference around settler colonialism, like there's two big differences that strike me. One is just this, like, is this terror of being flooded by migrants just about being this imagined white country in the global south? Like, is it about proximity? Or, and what role does the convict history play in this, like creating other island prisons? So, I think... You don't have... I mean, only if you feel like it. (laughs) Can I call a friend? (laughs) I think, I mean, again, like, to go to Australia's foundation, like, one of the first acts of Australian Parliament was to deport Pacific Island laborers who had basically been brought here as slaves. Like, the, the entire foundation of the country is about inclusion and exclusion and who's allowed to be here and who's not, right? Yeah. And, of course, terra nullius, right? The idea that this place is empty or that the people here are so devalued that they don't count mm-hmm. as people. So, yeah, I think definitely, like, deep, not even deep in the Australian psyche, like, the idea of being flooded or the idea of people who are not supposed to be here mm-hmm. is really just a reminder of our own crime, right? Mm-hmm. Because it just draws attention to who should be here in the first place right. or, or not. Right, yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, just geographically in the U.S., it's like the closer you are to the border with Mexico, the sort of crazier things get because people, it's like you say, it's this, it's, well, it's that fear, right? And it's... Um, but I think it's not just, 
like I said, it's not just the fear of you know the undesirables or these people going to steal our jobs or whatever. But I think it's it's in Australia, it's at the same time so obvious. It's just so obvious that we are here and we completely decimated. You know, yeah, if you look at is. a map of Australia before invasion, it's a full continent with hundreds of. You know, it's like like if you nuked Europe now, the difference in populations and languages and and cultures. So, and I think that's you know simultaneously visible and completely invisible. So I think it just pricks this nerve that's so close to the surface about right. you know this like constant lie that we live yeah. as you know as a modern like Australian society. Yeah, and then when you layer climate change on top of that, that Australia is the number one exporter of coal, which is the dirtiest of all the fossil fuels, so is playing a not insignificant role in in the forces that are causing in what will cause your neighbors, some of your neighbors, to disappear beneath the waves and create many more migrants. Like there's there's well, some stuff that needs to be unlocked here. I, I like the way that you talk about environment because, yeah, and you had this great line in, in a speech about um, Edward Said had no time for tree huggers, but tree huggers should make time for for Edward Said. The idea that you know the environment is not just this abstract, you know, nice thing like Mother Nature or Mother Earth that we need to preserve. The reality is we allow parts of the earth to be destroyed because we decide that the people there deserve to be destroyed mm-hmm. or are valued less. So, like, so that you know, exploitation is intimately tied to people's cultures and it's not just about land but it's about civilizations and race. Um, and I was thinking about something. Uh, like t- 2017 will be the 10th year of, of the Northern Territory intervention and um, I, was, I was looking back through Shock Doctrine and... Uh, for anyone who's not familiar, on the eve of the 2007 election, um, the, Labor, uh, the Howard government proposed uh, emergency measures that would take place in, in remote communities. Uh, Labor and, and the Liberals kind of shook hands and suspended the Racial Discrimination Act so that they could pass explicitly racist laws uh, affecting only Aboriginal people. Um, the military was sent in to occupy communities and impose these measures, which involved, you know, just smashing Aboriginal learning, uh, taking people out of community jobs, the tenders went out. I mean, when I was reading this, all of this stuff uh, just reminded me of the things that you describe in Katrina and Iraq, like this immediately rushing through of completely transformative kind of programs that destroy, but that kind of build as reconstruction. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fact that, you know, what you call frontline communities are like the petri dish or the, the testing lab for these kind of things. I was wondering if you could just talk about Katrina and Iraq and like the, the, the things that you saw there, because I think it's so important in terms of the way you describe how these things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think before you do, I think people misunderstand like some of your stuff around the shock doctrine. I think people think sometimes that you're saying that these shocks are engineered, like there's people in, you know, men smoking cigars kind of engineering these things, whereas I think what you're saying is that they smoke the cigars after. Right, after it's all done. Yeah. After, after the neoliberalism but like pretty implemented. Much right after. But I think yep. what, what you're saying is that neoliberalism is predatory and, you know, waiting in the wings. Sometimes it's engineered, you go to war, or sometimes there's a natural disaster. But either way, it's ready to, to come in and transform, you know, the affected area. Yeah, I mean, I think some, sometimes people misunderstand. Sometimes people get mad that I don't say it's a conspiracy. Um, Look, I think, I think we have a really volatile system um, that 
deregulated capitalism is extremely volatile and it produces its own shocks. Um, and I'm not saying there are never plots, um, but, uh, but, but you, you don't need to get conspiratorial to understand that there are going to be economic shocks. It's a boom and bust cycle um, that we've increased temperatures enough that there are now more and more frequent um, so-called natural disasters, although they're increasingly unnatural, um, and, uh, and, and military, you know, military and blowback from military shocks, right? Um, and that also often is linked to um, what is fueling climate change, which is this quest for, for fossil fuels. And um, so, so the shocks come, and the, the argument I make in the book is that, is that um, we have had an intellectual an economic, economic uh, intellectual elite that has engaged in pretty extensive disaster preparedness. Um, and, and by that, I don't mean like, you know, storing soup cans, but, you know, having their basket of ideas, which are pretty much always the same ideas, so it's easy to remember, um, ready no matter when the disaster happens and people are disoriented and, you know, trying to, to figure out what's going on. And so uh, Katrina was a, was a really classic case of that. I started writing the shock doctrine. Um, I was just reporting from Iraq about the Bush administration, and so, so they had this plan. I wrote a piece for Harper, Harper's that was sort of the seed of the shock doctrine, um, which uh, um, was about how they had this very clear plan that they were going to have their shock and awe in Beijing, and immediately afterwards they were going to turn Iraq into a free market utopia, and they brought in all these um, former shock doctors from previous economic shocks, like they brought a whole gang from Russia that had sold off the Russian economy to counsel the Iraqis that just don't wait, don't even wait five days, just sell off everything right now. Um, and it was all supposed to work out really, really well. And then the Iraqi resistance came up and, and, and it didn't work out so well. Um, after Katrina, which I, not a conspiracy, you know, I mean, this, this was a collision between a weak and neglected public sphere and heavy weather of the kind that we're going to see more and more of. Um, and the levees collapsed and the city flooded and, um, and uh, there was no government to be seen for five days. It, it, you had this sort of layering of, you know, this is why I say climate change isn't just about things getting hotter. It's about things getting meaner and uglier. You had white vigilantes shooting black people on site who were out after curfew, police shootings out of control, people abandoned in the Superdome for five days, extremely racialized in terms of who was there, who was left. Um, and you would have thought it would be a wake-up call, and there was some talk about this, like even these sort of hard, hard right commentators, like a guy named Jonah Goldberg, went like, you know, when you have a disaster, you kind of want big government to saddle up. And it's like, no, you, you sold it off. Like, there is no government to ride to the rescue. You gutted it, right? Um, and so there was this moment where it was like, is this going to be a wake-up call? And people were even saying, you know, neoliberalism is dead. This is, like the, this is like the collapse of the Berlin Wall for neoliberalism. 
And then there was this meeting, and this is where I say the cigars come after. There was a meeting at the Heritage Foundation, which I mentioned earlier, um, which is this uh, right-wing think tank in in Washington, D.C. They brought together uh, people from the Republican Party, including some of the people right around Trump right now, and they came up with a list, which was leaked to to the Wall Street Journal. And it was 32 free market solutions to Hurricane Katrina and rising gas prices. And if you look at the list, and it's privatize the school system, um, you know, keep, uh, close the hospital, the public hospital, um, build more oil refineries, um, drill for oil in Alaska. Like, what the hell does that have to do with drill for oil in the Alaskan National Wildlife? It was just like their wish list. But they were like, here's a disaster, we're just going to ram just it through. It was copied from a previous, someone who yeah, just it was like a cut and base, paste job. Yeah, and it was, you know, roll back labor, protect, there, there, there was a federal law that required you pay the prevailing wage, roll that back, all that. And, if it, you know, demolish public housing, put up condominiums instead. And you can pretty much go through that list now in New Orleans and go like, check, check, check. Um, they did a huge amount of it. And that's why I'm afraid it is quite significant that this, uh, this is who, um, you know, Trump has no policy depth. He's gone straight to the Heritage Foundation, and he seems to be um, just using them to fill his government. You're listening to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network. On today's show, we're listening to a wide-ranging conversation between best-selling author and journalist Naomi Klein and comedian Amir Rahman, talking just days after US President Donald Trump's 2016 election win. I mean, the key to understand about these politics is, is that they rely on our disorientation, right? They, deli- they rely on our fear. So it's incredibly important um, to, uh, to do whatever it takes to stay oriented, you know, to connect with one another and keep both feet on the ground and understand, you know, what is your reality and not have some new story about the world imposed upon you. Because, I mean, this is going to reverberate globally. Like, everybody, uh, every nefarious actor has just been, you know, super empowered by what happened in the United States. Um, and we're all going to feel, and we all have to be ready for it. Um, and, and, you know, we have to identify these patterns um, because that's what, you know, ha- makes us shock resistant um, well, and harder to, harder to exploit in those moments. And it's interesting that you say that anything can technically be a shock or things mm-hmm. can be elevated to the, yeah. to the position of, uh, you know, the status of shock, like the war on terror. We have this constant constant state of anxiety. Yeah. And on the other hand, we have a climate crisis, which is constantly like, no, it's not a shock That never all. gets like its turn, no. Like, things can be... Um, yeah, I mean, like, I, I would think what, what has happened in the Great Barrier Reef this year should have been a shock. Um, you know, in my country, um, a, a city in Alberta, uh, in the middle of the oil patch, uh, had to be completely evacuated. I'm sure you saw some of the images, Fort McMurray. Um, you know, the biggest evacuation in Canadian history, that could have been a shock if we had said, that's shocking, like, we're going to jump now, we're going to act like this is, you know, as big a shock as a terrorist attack. I think that's fair, you know? Uh, and it's subjective and it's political what, we, what gets turned into a shock. But, you know, I, I, um, it is not only politicians who have the power to declare an emergency. I mean, you look at Black Lives Matter, the movement for black lives in the United States, they, that is people declaring an emergency. They're not, there's nobody in government who is saying this is an emergency. It is people saying no more. 
right? Um, and creating that political momentum that demands action from, from leaders. So we have that power. And we can't forget that we have the power to declare people's emergency. Naomi Klein and Ame Rahman in conversation at the Wheeler Centre. We now hear some questions from the audience. So my question is, um, I think I really enjoyed both your talks and I'm a huge fan of Naomi Klein's work and I think it um, really puts forward a sort of fantastic kind of diagnosis of what's really wrong in the world. Um, But I guess the most important question is, you know, we have all these uprisings like Black Lives Matter, all these movements growing. What is the way forward? How can we unite all these kind of movements together to actually, you know, show that another world is possible? Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> That's a nice one. Um, could I ask um, some wonderful person from the Wheeler Center to bring us out some water whenever is convenient? Um, so, please. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement. There is a, um, if you search on vision for black lives, um, this is the proactive agenda that the movement has come up with, um, the movement for black lives. And it's a very, very extensive policy platform, um, which goes from like the short bumper sticker version uh, policy demands uh, down to like longer policy papers for people who want to get wonky about it. Um, about how to deal not just with um, police violence, but the structural structural inequalities. Um, it's a really ambitious platform that got a bunch of attention when it came out and then sort of disappeared. But that work is being done. Um, and um, I... I earlier was mentioned that I've worked on this project in Canada called the Leap Manifesto, which is this intersectional... Um, uh, plan to get off fossil fuels in a, her- in a hurry that puts indigenous rights, migrant rights um, at the center. Um, you know, it basically asks the question, how can we lower emissions in line with science at the same time as we create huge numbers of well-paying unionized jobs and make sure that the people who got the worst deal in the current extractive economy are first in line to receive the benefits and the money to own and control their own green energy. So we build a democratic uh, economic revolution at the same time as we change how we're getting our energy. And it's we've built a bunch of momentum around it. We have many trade unions um, who are using it uh, to change their sectors. We've been working with the post office, or the postal workers, on a plan to turn the post office into a hub for a green energy transition, um, but also uh, a jobs engine so that their whole fleet gets converted to uh, electric vehicles, they don't just deliver the mail, they deliver locally grown food, uh, they check in on the elderly, um, and they do postal banking and give people loans to do green energy co-ops. This is coming from a union that just decided to reject the logic of austerity. Um, they were sort of part of this negotiation with the government about shutting down postal service, selling them off to FedEx, whatever it was, and they were like, no, we have a plan for what the post office of the future looks like, and people are organizing around it, you know? Um, so I, but I, I, you know, I think that that intersectional work, right, um, is, you know, a lot of it is just that we don't have a lot of spaces where movements come together to do that work um, of, okay, well, here's our, because I, I think a lot of people have put um, a, a quite a bit of work 
into the yes side, right? Like we all have had a lot of experience saying, no, we don't want this trade deal, you know, no, we don't like, you know, this coal plant. Um, But I've seen a ton of work going on in all of these social movements about, okay, what is our yes? What is our, our policy platform? And I think the task is to like get in rooms together and weave it together into a common story. These issues are connected um, and, and then fight for it and inspire people. And don't wait for political parties to do it for you. We need people's platforms that gain enough support that the political parties have to adopt them. We might just take one more question from the top. Thank you, Amar and Naomi. Um, Absolutely amazing talk, and thank you for allowing us to listen. Um, The beauty of the current unipolar world, which might very soon change, means that we center the really profound movements in the United States, like Black Lives Matter. When I discuss collectivizing amongst the communities that I'm involved in, usually the members of these communities instantly centralize a very American notion or um, American ideas onto our context. And although there are similarities between North America and Australia settler colonies, there are clear differences between our experiences. Like, for example, Black Lives Matter should... Um, reinforce Indigenous Lives Matter because those um, that community is highly incarcerated um, in comparison to other communities in Australia. But how do we allow for that multiplicity while still learning from the American experience but allow for that multiplicity in activism in Australia? Mm-hmm. I should not have taken that question. <laughs> uh... I always I t- hey, Amar, I told you I'd come for you. <laughs> Difficult question. Um, I think, I just think history, you know, like history just goes so far in terms of us placing ourselves in the right moment. Um, and I think while social media has been fantastic in terms of connecting us to things that are happening elsewhere, I think it sometimes can be a little bit shallow, it can be a little bit surface. And so we just automatically try to transplant things that are maybe very successful or getting a lot of coverage somewhere else that are not really tied to a real history of struggle you know, with, with real communities here, uh, which is why sometimes I think it, it, it really fails. Um, and yeah, I, but I absolutely agree with you that there's no reason we shouldn't use those for inspiration. Clearly, like, they're, they're achieving amazing things and they're doing it you know, in, a, you know, in a self-determining kind of way. Um, but I think, yeah, like, I think I, I sound old saying this, but like... You know, for young people organizing in Australia, like, it's a good idea to learn about the history of organizing in Australia and how people have fought things. You know, the things that are not happening, they're never happening for the first time. They're, they're happening, you know, in a different way or they've been done in a different way before, so. That, I'm, that's yeah. the end of my talking. Yeah, well, I would I would just um, like to just end by saying, you know, we are we are off script right now. Like, no, no anybody who tells you they know what's going to happen next is lying. We really, really don't know. So all we know is that when we're isolated, sitting at home, looking at screens of whatever kind, um, that's when we are weakest, right? So it's a really important time. Whatever organizations you're a part of, whatever communities you're a part of, maybe you need to start something. Um, But just don't wait for stuff to just come at you, you know? Um, We're we're in a vulnerable place right now. So um, we're off script. Be an active participant in writing what happens next. Thank you.
Naomi Klein is a multi-award-winning journalist and author. Her work includes the best-selling 2014 book This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate, and 2007's The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism. Her most recent book is titled No Is Not Enough, Resisting the New Shock Politics and Winning the World We Need. The audio we heard today is from a talk recorded at the Wheeler Centre in November 2016. You can listen to the full audio and many more on the Wheeler Centre's website. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Community Radio's National Environmental Justice Programme. I'm Tisha Nahern. If you missed any of today's show, you can listen to our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash Earth Matters. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on Wurundjeri Country. If you'd like to get in contact with Earth Matters, you can call the station on 03-9419-8377. You can send us an email at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page. I hope you can tune in next time for more Earth Matters. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.